0: All right. Well, today we are continuing in our new series on parables, and so if you want to uh, open up your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 13, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. You know, Jesus told a lot of parables, and so we're kind of just jumping around, choosing different ones. Uh, I just uh, I have a big list of them. I just chose random ones, and that's what we're doing. Uh, we did. We actually did a series on parables several years ago at Redeemer. Uh, really, uh, just shortly after we had launched as a church. And one of the beautiful things about uh, parables is that, uh, like I said, Jesus taught so many of them that you can make several series worth out of the parables. And so uh, I'm really excited for us to be doing this series. It's going to be great. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 today and starting in verse 24. So I'll give you just a moment to turn there if you're going to be following along in your Bible. If you have a hard time finding it, no worries, because we'll have the text on the screens next to me so you can follow along there. Once again, we'll be in Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read starting in verse 24. Now in this parable, we have the parable and then a couple verses down, we have Jesus' explanation of it. So we're going to read both parts of that. So um, so I'll tell you what verses get down to once we get there. But we're going to start with reading the parable in verse 24. Okay. All right. So, in Matthew chapter 13, and in verse 24, it says, He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked him. No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles and burn them. But collect the wheat in my barn. Now, Jesus interprets this parable for us down in verse 36. In verse 36, it says Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He replied, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are his angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. So, Human beings, just as people, we are story-driven creatures. We live and we thrive on stories. In fact, you know, as a child, you interpret all of the world through story, don't you? You learn so many of the lessons about life and what it means to be a person and how to interact in the world through stories. Very often, we learn truths not just through, you know, not just through cold propositions or value statements but we learn them through stories because we are we are story driven creatures story is at the core of human life and so because of this good teachers will often teach in story right with anecdotes illustrations and so on and jesus being a master teacher often taught in parables because what he was doing in parables was he was giving people who were listening these concrete stories right concrete stories about um, about a man going on a journey or about a father with sons or, in this case, about a master of a field and, you know, the, the drama that plays out in, in, uh, in sowing his seed and gathering the harvest and so on. Jesus would teach these concrete stories in order to teach uh, his disciples, people who are listening, and to teach us about truths and spiritual realities, right? So, Jesus didn't come and just teach, once again, in cold propositions and say, The kingdom is this, and the kingdom is that, and the kingdom is not this or not that, but instead he gave stories in parables. So parables, there are these concrete stories that teach us about the kingdom. They teach us about the gospel, and they teach us about life. They they cover a wide range of topics, most often centered somewhat around the kingdom, uh, and, and Jesus has many, many, many of them. And so once again, we're examining different parables in this series and looking at this one this morning. This parable that Jesus gives them and then interprets for them in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or maybe your translation says the wheat and the tares, right? What Jesus is teaching them about and what I want us to learn about, the main thing, the main lesson at the center of this parable for us this morning is this. It is about perseverance in the Christian life. This parable for us this morning is about perseverance in the Christian life, especially Perseverance in the Christian life in the face of a world that is still filled with sin. Perseverance in the Christian life in the face of our own lives, right? (laughs) Which are very often still filled with sin, where we struggle against the flesh, where we struggle against the enemy, where we struggle against temptation and so on. Within ourselves, then we see it in the world and we experience opposition. Perseverance in the face of all these. This is why Jesus gives us this parable. And so we're going to learn this through looking at sort of the three acts of the parable, or you could say even the, the, the three primary uh, characters or factors. And the first one is the weeds of the world. Okay, so first we're going to look at the weeds of the world. Then secondly, we're going to look at the seeds of the kingdom. And then lastly, the master of the field. Those are the primary components in this story. So the weeds of the world, the seeds of the kingdom, and then the master of the field. So let's start by looking at the the weeds of the world. Whenever Jesus told parables, what he was doing was he was very often giving, teaching them this this story, this parable, uh, in a way that was a very realistic story. So Jesus wasn't teaching parables that were fairy stories, that were fantasy stories, okay? Um, Now, sometimes there would be very unexpected elements to his stories, and and we'll get into some of those. Uh, Things that would happen that would be very unexpected and shocking to his listeners yet stories which are still very realistic, that connected to their everyday lives. And so in this parable, Jesus is doing exactly that. He's teaching about a very realistic situation and something that would have absolutely connected to the lives of many of his hearers because you have to remember, in this time, they were a primarily agricultural society, right? Most of us in here, I I believe, as far as I know, Uh, don't base our our lives or our incomes off of growing crops, right? But many of them did, or at least if they did not, their family did, or their uncle did, or their father did, you know, maybe they went to some other kind of trade, but that was at the core of their society. And so what Jesus was explaining here would have been very easily understood. It would have connected to their real lives. What he's talking about here is how there's a master of a field, so there, there, there's a master of this farm, right? He's got all this property. He sends his servants out to plant seeds, for uh, uh, to, to sow those seeds. The harvest time is coming up so they can have a good crop, a, great, a good wheat come out of the, the crop, right? And it says that during the, the night or whenever they weren't watching the fields, uh, an enemy came in and sowed some weeds among it. And at first they all grew up together. But then after a period of time, the servants of the field noticed, wait a minute, we have our wheat... But then mixed in it, we also have these weeds. And so they went and told the master. They said, well, how how did this happen? He said, an enemy did this. Now, that might not make a lot of sense to us, but you have to understand this would have made a lot of sense to them because this was a very realistic possibility, something that could have actually happened. Because back then, uh, there was, you know, I don't know what you want to call it. If you want to call it like an ancient form of biological warfare, or if you want to call it an ancient form of uh, cutthroat business tactics, this was something that two, uh, you know, whether it's, whether it's two families with, with great farms who are in competition with one another or, or even a foreign enemy or someone from another tribe, whatever it might be. This is a very realistic thing that they could do. They could sneak onto someone else's farm in the midst of all their crops and plant these weeds, specifically what scholars think that Jesus is referring to is this type of a weed called a darnel they could go and plant this type of weed called a darnel. They could plant this darnel all throughout the field. And the thing about darnel is that it would grow up with the wheat. And for most of the time, as these two plants are growing alongside each other, the wheat and the darnel, as they're growing up and maturing, they look exactly the same. Even for these servants who work in the fields, they couldn't tell the difference until they growed up and matured, and then they could see, wait a minute, there are weeds among all of it. And the thing about the darnel is that it could actually poison the good seeds. You see, so it wasn't just like, uh, you know, like weeds you have in your flower bed that are a nuisance for you to go and pick out, right? Because you want it to look nice and clean. We're not talking about those kind of weeds. We're talking about a kind of weeds that could actually poison and that could actually suffocate out the good crop. That's what Jesus is describing here. A farmer with his fields the wheat growing up but an enemy has come in to try to sabotage to try to corrupt and to suffocate out the work that the master and his servants were trying to accomplish this is what Jesus is telling them about and so the first lesson that we have to learn from this is an is an obvious one it is this that the enemy seeks to destroy the work of the kingdom the enemy seeks to destroy the work of the kingdom because Jesus himself tells us down in his interpretation later in chapter 13. He said that the enemy is Satan, it's the devil, right? It is, it is the enemy of God, and that uh, the, the good crop uh, is his kingdom. This parable that we have, as a side note, this parable that we have here is very allegoric, right? It's very allegorical. Um, every element in this parable stands for something. That's not true of all parables, okay? All, not every single one we should read allegorically and, and try to find a hidden meaning and symbolism behind every element. But in this uh, parable, because Jesus tells us it is, well, then it's appropriate for us to, okay? <laughs> Whenever Jesus says it is, it is, all right? So in this one, he said, he said, the enemy is Satan, the good crop is the kingdom. So this parable teaches us that the enemy seeks to destroy the work of the kingdom. The enemy goes in and plants this darnel, right? The enemy goes in and plants the weeds, the tares, in order to suffocate the work of the kingdom. And so when it translated into our everyday life, this is talking about the work of the enemy, the work of Satan, the work of the devil, uh, working through a cosmic Darnell, right? Working through sin, working through darkness, working through evil in order to destroy and to suffocate out the work of the kingdom, right? The good crop that God is, is, uh, is sowing and uh, seeking to harvest. That is what Jesus shows us here, the first thing that he wants to see. And so, just an obvious thing to point out for us, there is an enemy. There is an enemy in our world today, in our, in our life today, that we must be aware of and on the watch out for. There is an enemy, Jesus tells us clearly in this passage. And I just want to highlight that because I want us to, to take note of here what Jesus is clearly laying before our eyes, which is the reality of spiritual warfare. I think it's important for us to emphasize that and to look at it this morning because in our tradition, you know, as as, as, uh, as evangelicals or as, you know, as reformed evangelicals, we can often overlook this aspect of the Christian life, right? We can often overlook it or or minimize it, right? Play down uh, certain aspects of it because, well, we don't want to appear too, too out there, right? Because we we all know those examples of of the out there, right? And we we want to appear reasonable. We want to appear modern, right? Uh, Rational. And so attributing every little thing in our life to spiritual warfare doesn't seem very sophisticated, right? But we need to make sure that we emphasize and we note what Jesus emphasizes and notes here, which is that this is a reality. This is a real thing. Spiritual warfare. There is an enemy out there which seeks to destroy the work of the church. There is an enemy out there which wants to suffocate out the life which Christ has put into you through opposition, through adversity, through temptation, through trying to latch onto the desires of your flesh and magnify them so that you will gratify those desires of the flesh, right? An enemy which works through, uh, through family conflicts and strife, right? An enemy who works to try to bring division into local churches, an enemy which breaks down communities and neighborhoods, an enemy which works through corruption and in, uh, in, in leadership of whether it be commerce, politics, whatever else. There is an enemy out there which seeks to destroy the field, being the world, and to suffocate out the good crop, which is the kingdom of God, the church. There is an enemy. What that means is, is that we need to be prepared and to maintain this wartime mentality, Understanding that the Christian life is not, we are not yet in a time of peace. We're not in peacetime yet in the Christian life. As long as we are still in this life, as long as we are still in this world, we are at war. We're at war with our own flesh, right? Seeking to kill the flesh, to mortify the desires of the flesh, and to satisfy the desires of the spirit. We're at war with the flesh, and we're at war with the enemy who works through our own flesh and who works through uh, others to oppose the work of the spirit and to oppose the growth of the kingdom. That being said, we need to understand this. That being said, we need to understand that our battle is against the devil and it is not a, and it is not primarily against those people who are in his snare. Right? The Bible talks about and, and you know if we read this this parable, it's impossible for us to to be able to Perfectly and neatly separate between right the devil working through like planting the Darnell, but then the weeds that eventually suffocate the kingdom. Right, it's impossible for us to perfectly separate those two because let's say that you or, or that the church is being opposed or even persecuted by a people group or a person today. Right, in in one sense that person is is in opposition, is an adversary. Right? But in another sense, and in a greater sense, if we see things from an eternal point of view, in one sense, that person or people, or whenever we experience opposition, they are themselves uh, in the snare under the trap of the enemy. Okay? We see this uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Paul says to the Ephesians, put on the full armor of God. Remember, we're we are in wartime, not peacetime. He says, "Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, against uh, spiritual forces in the heavens. So that being said, I understand we're in wartime mentality, right? Remember, we're in a battle primarily against Satan, sin, and evil while understanding that we are seeking to persuade and to see the salvation and the transformation of those who are in his snare. I want to emphasize that as I talk about spiritual warfare because I want us to understand that we would, we would be misreading this parable if we read it as a parable being about good versus bad people. It's not a parable about good versus bad people. It is a parable about two kingdoms at war with one another. And understanding that weeds don't have to stay weeds. Okay? So here's what I want you to take away from this first point. Hope in the redemption of men and women. Hope in the redemption. Because we are in a spiritual war. We are at battle. Victory in our battle is not annihilation of people or our neighbors. It is not, victory in our battle is not proving ourselves right over against our neighbors, right? Or or necessarily getting our way, but seeing their hearts and souls transformed by the Spirit of God through conversion, which results in repentance and faith, then receiving salvation. Hope in the redemption of men and women. This is the goal of our warfare, right? The blessing of people in salvation and the flourishing of human society through God's spirit bringing redemption and transformation. That's our goal. That, that, that's what we're shooting after. That's victory in the warfare that we wage. So there's an enemy, but we hope for the redemption of those who are in, caught up in his snare. Let's look at the seeds of the kingdom. So the servants come to the master, and they say to him, didn't you plant a good crop? But we're we're finding these weeds now, we're finding this darnel. And they want to go and try to rip it out, right? Because I told you before, the darnel, the weeds, can suffocate and, and, and can poison the good crop. It can poison the weeds. So the servants, they're afraid that the presence of the weeds, that the presence of the darnel is going to destroy the good crop. Is going to destroy it, or it's going to poison it. And so they're ready to go and rip it out, get rid of it. But the master says to them instead that they are going to have to wait. He says, no, don't do it yet. Instead, let's wait. Wait until the time comes. Wait until the harvest comes. And whenever the harvest comes, we'll pull both together and separate them then. A time of harvest is going to come. The master says, we will wait until then. So here's the second major point I want you to see in this part of the story. The kingdom of God will grow and flourish even in the face of adversity. The kingdom of God will grow and flourish even in the face of adversity. Two things I want to, two implications I want to pull out of this. The first one is this that, that this shows us Jesus' confidence that the weeds cannot suffocate the wheat. And shouldn't that give us hope? Shouldn't that give us confidence? Jesus says, you know, because he tells us that the master is the son of man, and so this would be Jesus speaking, right? his character speaking this parable. He says, you guys are afraid, and you're, you're, you're ready, and you're, you're eager, you're feeling a sense of urgency that we've got to get rid of the adversity. We've got to get rid of the weeds right now because you think the wheat won't survive. It'll survive. Wait until the harvest the good crop will continue to grow, it will continue to flourish, a time will come. You see, that is Jesus saying that he has full confidence that the work that he began and that the work that he is doing even now in our day, uh, planting the good seed into people's heart, right, and spreading and growing the kingdom today, that it will continue. Despite what the devil and the world throws at it, the weeds cannot suffocate The wheat. So that's the first thing we see that the kingdom will continue to advance despite what the enemy attempts. One of my absolute favorite phrases in all of scripture is the very last ones at the book of Acts. So you know, Acts was written by Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts. There are two books put together, meant to be a part one and part two. And it's all about the gospel, right? The gospel in Jesus' life, and then his death and resurrection, his ascension, the birth of the church, and then the gospel, the kingdom expanding through the proclamation of the word. And so throughout the book of Acts, Luke shows us all of these different adversities and all of these different oppositions which are thrown at the church, right? Very early on in Jerusalem, it was the ruling elites. It was the Pharisees and Sadducees. It was the Sanhedrin, which were opposed to the gospel. They tried to stop it and suffocate it, but they couldn't right? They put Peter and John in prison, but a, an angel came and released them from prison. What did they do? They went right back out and kept preaching the gospel. The gospel couldn't be stopped. The same thing happened to Paul. You remember Paul was put in prison. Him and Silas were in prison. They sing and worship to the Lord. The gates are open. They go back out and continue preaching. Paul was stoned in one of the, the towns that they visited. And do you know what happened? He got, he got a. That's crazy. People don't get up after being stoned, <laughs> He got up, right? This is showing us the power of the gospel despite adversity. He was stoned, but he got up and went back into the town and continued preached, preaching the gospel and discipling people. He was in chains on a ship in a great uh, windstorm, right? Like, something like a hurricane came upon the ship, caused them to be shipwrecked, floating on pieces of the ship, uh, landing on some remote island, uh, and, and which then led to the people of that island, who are living there, hearing the gospel, being evangelized because of Paul being brought there. So the story of Acts is about the gospel overcoming again and again and again and again. And then it ends with this uh, at the very end of the book. With Paul, under house uh, he, he is living uh, in a house prison while he is awaiting trial before Caesar. But even as he is in, uh, house, under house arrest, uh, there are people coming, hearing him, preach the gospel. Jews living in Rome as well as Gentiles, his, his jailers coming and hearing the gospel. And so Luke ends in this way, even while Paul is under house arrest with a chain around his ankle, it says, and so he continued to preach unhindered. That's how it finishes, unhindered. Jesus said, just wait. The harvest time is coming. We'll separate them then. Until then, the kingdom's going to continue going. That's the first thing. The second thing that this means, the kingdom of God will continue to grow and flourish even in the face of adversity. The second is this. This means that the seeds of the kingdom, which are believers, which are you if you belong to Christ, if you're one of his disciples, the seeds of the kingdom, believers, must patiently persevere until the harvest. That is what this story means for us. If you are one of those good seeds, if you're one of the wheat And you feel sometimes oppressed or suffocated by the enemy, by the world, by your own flesh, by your own struggle to grow, by your own uh, failures in giving into sin and temptation. What this parable teaches us is that we must continue to patiently persevere until the time of the harvest. Like I said at the beginning of this sermon, This parable, I believe, or at least the one thing that I want to highlight from it today is that it is about perseverance in the Christian life. Perseverance in the Christian life is one of the absolute key attributes, one of the core meanings of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be among the community of the saints, right, the household of God. One of the key marks is perseverance. This is a story about perseverance, Jesus shows us that the kingdom of God comes and grows gradually and incrementally, right? Uh, Wheat doesn't pop up overnight. I don't have a green thumb. I'm not a farmer. I'm not even good at doing flower beds and all that, but I know enough to know this. When you plant a seed, whatever it is, the crop doesn't grow overnight. It takes time, right? It takes patience. It's slow. It happens incrementally. And Jesus says, in the same way, the kingdom grows slowly, gradually, in stages and in increments. And whenever his kingdom grows slowly, incrementally, even with the adversity, once again, it will continue to grow as it should. And what that means for us in the face of opposition, adversity, our own personal struggles, in the face of even how slowly and gradually the kingdom grows, it will continue growing. Therefore, we must patiently persevere. This means even for your own personal Christian growth, it is not going to happen overnight. But how many of us arrogantly, I might add, how many of us arrogantly assume that we should be, you know, some kind of much, much, much holier or more righteous version of ourselves today than we were yesterday? And how many of us start beating ourselves down or doubting the work of God, or, 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 or allowing all kinds of doubt to come into our hearts and minds because we think, oh my good, I'm just not growing as I think I should, right? I'm, I'm still struggling with this thing that I was struggling with a week ago, right? Or I'm still struggling with this that I was struggling with even a year ago. But just like in terms of the big picture, the kingdom, the kingdom grows slowly, often the kingdom grows slowly within you. And God's okay with that. But we, like I said before, I think it's a hidden arrogance. We, I think, arrogantly often assume, oh, well, I should be growing faster than this. Listen, you shouldn't be trying to grow at whatever pace you think you are. You need to just be content with growing at God's pace. Understanding that God is not in a rush in your holiness. Your salvation is secure in the work of Christ. I just finished this, this book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And in that book, he, he wrote this. Um, he said, There will come, come a day where you will be less sinful than you are right now. But you are right now not less loved than you will be on that day. God's not in a rush, your salvation is secure. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, for he loved us even while we were sinners. He displayed, he proved his love for us. And so stop guilt tripping yourself and stop beating yourself down. And most importantly, stop doubting God's work because you're trying to grow and live and achieve some kind of character goals or spiritual growth goals on your own timetable. Trust and accept and be content in God's work and in his timeline, okay? Here's what I want us to take away from this. It's obvious, perseverance in the face of adversity. Perseverance in the face of adversity is the application point I want you to take away from that. Understanding this, perseverance is active. Whenever I talk about patience from this parable, patiently persevering, I'm talking about something that is active, not just a passive sitting, uh, being one of the good seeds and being a wheat, being a disciple of Jesus and a citizen in God's kingdom doesn't mean sitting around twiddling our thumbs until the time of the harvest. Perseverance is active. It is, like I said before, it is one of the marks of Christian character. Perseverance is continuing to fight against sin. It is continuing to mortify, right? That I means, that's a fancy word for kill the flesh, right? flee from temptation to pursue righteousness. We do all these things as we patiently wait for God to bring about the crop right, to bring about the growth, to bring about the harvest. We continue to work in all of these things. That is what perseverance means. It is active. It's not sitting back and waiting. It is being right along with God, working in the field, with our hands in the dirt. We work with our hands in the dirt, in the face of opposition and adversity, but then leave the results up to him. That is what we are called to here. Perseverance. Courageous perseverance is not hiding, The story of this parable is not that there's an enemy out there no go and hide until the harvest. Courageous perseverance is not hiding. It is not just getting by. But it is a steadfast in the midst of adversity. Christian perseverance is active once again. It is doing good even whenever that is the hardest thing to do. The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says this about perseverance. So perseverance according to Scripture is the ability to take a great deal of punishment from evil people or circumstances without losing one's temper, without becoming irritated and angry, or without taking vengeance. It includes the capacity to bear pain or trials without complaint, the ability to forbear under severe provocation, and the self-control which keeps one from acting rashly, even through suffering opposition or adversity perseverance in the face of adversity. So then we come to the master of the field. Right now we live in the in-between. We live in the in-between of the sowing and the harvesting. We live in the in-between of the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. What this parable shows us and what we should hold on to while we live in the in-between right now is this. This parable shows us Jesus's confidence in a final victory. Like I said before, the master of the field, Jesus, shows no sense of fearful urgency um, to to save the kingdom, to save the good crop. He shows patience, the ability to wait. You know what that shows? That shows a lot of confidence. Jesus shows a lot of confidence here in the work that he is doing, in the work that the Father has planned, and the work that the Holy Spirit is effectuating in the world, that there will be a final victory. He has so much confidence in that, that like I said before, he said, we can wait until the harvest. And so the third major point is this. The master of the field will have his final victory. The master of the field will have his final victory. How? The question is, how will he have his final victory? Because, like I said before, the enemy seeks to destroy the field. That's the goal. Not just to suffocate the wheat, right? That is a part of it, right? That the Darnell would grow up and suffocate the wheat, but that it would poison the soil itself. And Jesus said, the field is the world. The enemy has something larger in mind than just stopping the church, but destroying the world, destroying everything in it. Right? So the enemy wants to destroy the world, but Jesus wants to save his kingdom. How will he accomplish that? Especially moreover, how is he going to save his kingdom in the midst of a world that is being uh, r- you know, run by the enemy? Whenever we who are his people, if you are one of his people his disciples, whenever those people who are in his kingdom have contributed to the evil in the world. Are any of us innocent of that cosmic Darnell? Are any of us innocent Are any of our hands clean from not just being a victim, but being a participant in the evil of the world, of being a participant in sin, in darkness, of having walked in it, of having delighted in it, of having it rule our hearts, minds, and souls? Are any of us innocent of this? How will Jesus save his kingdom, his people, us, whenever we deserve to be burned up in the furnace with the rest of the weeds. How will he accomplish that? How can Jesus have so much confidence? Because the master of the field would go to the cross. Jesus, the master of the field, Jesus the Lord, would go to the cross, and on the cross he would take upon himself the punishment for the cosmic Darnell. Jesus would take upon himself the punishment, the condemnation, and the wrath of God upon human sin. So that in swallowing it up in his own death, the, 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 uh, the death and the uh, judgment that we should have received for our participation in the sin of the world, for our participation in the darkness and, and, and delighting in the wickedness of the world, and for having been a part of all that, Jesus swallowed up our death in his own death. Jesus absorbed in himself the wrath of God that should have been ours. So that whenever he absorbed that in himself and he swallowed it up and he laid our death down in his grave, he accomplished our salvation so that at the time of the harvest, which is the end of days, where it comes time for him to bring judgment down on the world, we might be spared, right, saved. We might experience our salvation from that judgment because he took the judgment for us. He can have so much confidence that the weeds will not suffocate and kill the kingdom because that kingdom was bought with his blood. Because your salvation, he he has so much confidence that nothing can snuff out or suffocate your salvation, that nothing can stop the work that he starts in you. He can have so much confidence because his work is stronger. Is that not good news for you, Christian? That, that the whole weight of the world, that all of the schemes of, the de- of Satan and his devils cannot overpower the power of salvation in you. The power of Jesus' finished work in you. This is why Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 2 that he will see through to the end the good work that he has started in you. The master of the field will have his final victory. And like a farmer, he tends to his work. He tends to his work. He watches over the crop. He takes care of it. He waters it. He he nourishes it. He protects it until it is time for the harvest. And he is doing the same thing over your your life right now. Whether you feel like a great oak tree on those days where you're doing well, or whether you feel like a tiny little sapling, whether you feel like a little fragile nothing barely sticking out of the ground, regardless of where you are and regardless of what you feel like on any given day, he's that farmer looking over, protecting, watching the life and nourishing and bringing that life up until the day whenever his work is complete. Whenever we are done living in the in-between and we experience the consummation of the kingdom, entering into uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, celebrating our liberation from sin, from the flesh, our blessing of being in heaven and living in the full presence of God, freed from all wickedness, with all of God's enemies, including the devil himself and death itself, being put underneath the feet of our king. He's going to see you through until that day. If his work has already begun in you, then he is going to see it through until that day. It is not ultimately up to you. It is not in your hands, and it is not ultimately underneath your control to make that day come and happen. It is in his. You see, so earlier I was telling you, persevere, persevere, right? Do the right thing when it's the hardest thing. Keep working, keep fighting, keep repenting, keep trusting, right? Do these things. Perseverance is active, it's not passive. Okay, now that might sound inspiring until Tuesday. Maybe even tomorrow, <laughs> it might even be that inspiring more. Until you get another couple of, until you take another couple of shots from the world or from the devil. Well, then on Tuesday this week, how are you going to continue persevering by the confidence that comes from knowing? that his power at work in you is greater than the power of the world. Perseverance by confidence in him, that he is that farmer looking over your growth and that he will see it through till the end. But you might be asking, well, how do I know? How can I know that he is at work in me? Here's how you know. You know that he is at work in you if you discern an outside power working in your life. You know that He is at work in you, if you discern, or if you have discerned in your life before, that there is an outside power working your life. Wherever you have a growth in your character, that you know that didn't come from me, right? Or I, I, I never saw myself being able to do this, right? Whether it is patience, whether it is freedom from from anger or bitterness, whatever else it might be, the ability to forgive someone, right? You know, just just a couple of examples, but we go through so many more. Whenever something happens in your life, you experience a transformation and growth that you know, that didn't come from me, right? Whenever you can discern an outside power working in your life. So to put it in other words, if you know that life itself has entered your soul, that's how you know that he is at work in you. If you have experienced, once again, a transformation from another power, That's how you know that he is at work in you. Are you experiencing that power today? Are you experiencing that transformation today? Maybe some of us are. And I hope that even if it's a little bit of transformation, like I said before, the kingdom moves gradually. Even if it's just a little bit of transformation, then rejoice in that. Take uh, take consolation to your weary heart in that. Maybe some of us today aren't experiencing transformation But you can look in the past, maybe the recent or maybe the distant. You can look in the past and know that you have been transformed. But you need to experience that power some more. You need to experience it anew. Let me tell you the key. Do you want to know what you have to do? Well, in a sense, you have to quit doing. Most likely, the reason that you have not been experiencing that transformation power in your life is because you've been trying to do it by your own power. But what did I say? You know that he is at work in you when you experience an outside power. What's the problem? The problem is that you've been trying to persevere without the confidence in him. Most likely, you've been trying to persevere through confidence in your own abilities, in your own power, in your own self. So it's no surprise that you wouldn't experience his transformation, right? So what do you need to do? Well, like I said, in a sense, you need to stop doing and start beholding him. In a sense, you need to stop doing and trusting in yourself and judging yourself by your timeline and and, and making new resolutions. And even just for a moment, stop and behold him. Behold his confidence in this passage and all the promises of the New Testament about God accomplishing his salvation in your life, right? Take trust and rest in that. And then don't be surprised if you start experiencing that power working through you once again. And then wherever you discern. God's power working through you, then just take part in it. You see, that's the active part. But maybe some of us have never experienced that transformation. At the end of this parable, there's only two options that Jesus tells us. There's burning in the furnace, or there's shining in the kingdom. Which one would you be? If this was the world's last night, if the harvest was today, or if maybe the, the end of your life were today, where would you be? Would you be one of the weeds in the furnace? Or would you be one of the children shining like the sun in the Father's kingdom? The way that you can know, and maybe if you need to become one from the other, if you need to go from being a weed to being one of his children today, the way that that happens is by trusting in the work of the master of the field, Trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, who absorbed your condemnation, who received your penalty, who took your death and placed it in his grave. Trusting in that work to be your salvation. Trusting that whenever Jesus did that, it is it bought the forgiveness for your sin. And then living in repentance and faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you now and we ask for your help in Absorbing and understanding these things that we have learned about this morning. Father, would you give us, uh, grant us perseverance. Perseverance that comes not through trying to do it ourselves, but perseverance that comes only through confidence in your work. Receiving a power that comes from outside of ourselves. Lord, living by your power. Knowing that you you are the farmer, looking over us, uh, watering us, and bringing about life, Lord, nurturing the life that you have placed into our hearts and souls, Father, let us experience that power today, and then and then whenever we experience it, to then work alongside of it, Lord, discern where you are moving in our life, and then move with you, follow where you are leading, and and kill sin by your power, and walk in righteousness by the strength that you supply. And, Father, if there are any in here who have not experienced your salvation, Lord, would you open their hearts this morning and put that good seed into their hearts, that outside power that comes in and brings life where no other power could have brought life, where no decision or resolution that they could have made themselves could bring life. Lord, open their hearts. Give them a new heart. Give them a new life and let them follow you in repentance and faith. We pray these things in your name. Amen.